before I start here. Father, we, uh, we come to you now, Lord, and I ask that you would just uh, prepare me, Lord, to, uh, to handle and to preach your word. Father, I ask that you would empty me of myself, Lord, so that you and your spirit would be able to flow through me. Father, I ask that you help me to be clear, concise, and accurate, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you just prepare the hearts of those that are here, not only to hear your word, Lord, but to understand it, and that we all go forth and that we do it. I ask this in your name. Amen. Please open your Bible to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 11. That's 1 Kings, chapter 11. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it's page 426. And if you're using your own Bible, and 1 Kings is one of those books that we don't normally study, you might not be familiar with it. Maybe an easy way to find it. It's just to start in Genesis, start at the very front of the Bible and just start turning towards the back. It's the 11th book in, if that helps, and you'll find it sandwiched right in between 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Chronicles. As you're finding 1st Kings chapter 11, let me give you a little background into the book, into what's going on in the lives of God's people, the children of Israel, also known as the 12 tribes of Israel. 1st Kings traces the history of God's people, the 12 tribes, through the kings that ruled over them. It is an unfortunate history. It is a troubled history. It is a very sinful history. It's a time of continual and unrepentant disobedience to God, not only by the people, but also by their leaders that ends quite tragically. It is a somber reminder that God requires obedience to his laws, no matter who you are, peasant or king. It's a reminder, James reminds us of that in chapter 3 in his epistle when he says that from those who are in authority, those who lead, those who teach, there will be a stricter judgment for them. Jesus also gives us a similar warning in Luke 12 when he says, From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Throughout the book of Kings, we see the patience of God over and over. We see the long-suffering of our Lord that Peter says is salvation. We see the grace of God over and over as God sends his prophets, his messengers, to speak to his people. He gives his prophets words directly to speak to his people and their leaders. These prophets spoke with the authority and the power of God, calling both kings and the people to repent, to return to God, and to obey him. God also appears to King Solomon two times, telling him, warning him, to be sure to obey. Despite God's patience, his long-suffering, his grace, his sending of the prophets, even his appearing to King Solomon two times, the result is tragic. God executes divine discipline. He allows his people to be invaded, to be conquered, and to be carried off as punishment for their sin for refusing to listen to the continual warning of the prophets. Although God sends his people into captivity, he is still faithful. At the heart of the book is God's covenant, God's promise that he makes with his people, specifically to King David, the shepherd king, the giant slayer. God remembers and keeps the promise he made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when he promised to establish David's house and his kingdom forever. Did you ever hear someone say, I don't like the God of the Old Testament, he is mean and full of wrath. I like the God of the New Testament better, Jesus is so much more loving and compassionate. Maybe some of us are thinking that right now, wondering how God could punish his people by allowing them to be conquered and carried away. During this invasion, during this exile, the Jewish people were massacred by the thousands, if not the ten thousands. But let me just say that that kind of thinking is completely wrong. That view of God is totally wrong. We do not have two different gods. We don't have an angry God of the Old Testament and a loving God of the New Testament. 
Remember Moses' words in Deuteronomy 6 when he said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. In the New Testament, we have the words of Jesus as he speaks to the Pharisees in John chapter 10. He says, I and the Father are one. Also in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 34, as God is graciously replacing the Ten Commandments that Moses broke, God introduces himself. He describes himself like this to Moses. He says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to the thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Remember in John's Gospel, in chapter 14, Philip asked Jesus to show him the Father. Jesus answers, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Let me just bring one more point to your, to your mind that will really, I think, put this to bed. Just keep your finger here in 1 Kings chapter 11 and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1. Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1. Here we read, verses 1 and 2, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now jump to verse 14. It says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Let me just show you a little trick that I learned as a very young Christian when Pastor Mark took me under his wing. He taught me this little trick. Every time you read the word, word, in the text here, I want you to substitute Jesus for it. So it'll read something like this. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Jesus was with God in the beginning. Now jump to verse 14. Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Simply said, Jesus is God with skin on. So let's put the idea of an angry Old Testament God and a loving New Testament God to bed once and for all. We have one God, a God of mercy and a God of grace. Scripture, tell us we, scripture tells us we have a God who does not change, so we are not consumed. A God who in his great love for us has separated our sin as far as east is from the west. He has compassion on us as a father has compassion on his child. He remembers our sins no more. He buries them in the sea. By the way, those are all Old Testament verses that I just quoted. So while we have two Testaments, an Old Testament and a New Testament, we have one Bible and we have one God. Okay, back to 1 Kings chapter 11. And I should have put my finger in there. I didn't. But here we go. I use this little thing they gave me. Pretty funny. <laughs> Maybe an easy way to remember the flow of the book is to take its 22 chapters and divide them in half. The first half of the book, chapters 1 through 11, trace the reign of King Solomon, David's son. When David died, his son Solomon became king. Under Solomon, under Solomon's reign, the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes, God's chosen people, are united and strong. The kingdom is at its most glorious time in history. It's a time of peace, prosperity, and blessing. Solomon is described as being the wealthiest and the most wisest man in the world. He was so rich that silver was considered of no value in his kingdom. It was considered as valuable as, a stone, as valuable as a stone would be. Solomon also has the unique privilege of building the temple of God. Once the temple is built, the ark is brought and placed inside the temple, and there's a dedication ceremony at which 22,000 cattle and 120,000 goats and sheep are sacrificed. That's a pretty wild party. It's a period of blessing and bliss. The people and King Solomon are obedient and they are blessed. The second half of the book, chapters 12 through 22, the kingdom and the 12 tribes become divided and weak. Civil war rips it in two. It's a period of disobedience, uh, turmoil, war. Sin is common and ever-increasing. 
immorality, idolatry are rampant, and the people adopt the sinful lifestyles of the surrounding, people, of the surrounding nations. Chapter 11 is also the turning point of the book. We see the people of Israel, the 12 tribes who were united under Solomon, they fracture. They fracture into two separate kingdoms, two separate nations, with two separate religions, and two separate kings. This split, this civil war, takes place not under the reign of Solomon, but under the reign of Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Although this split takes place during the reign of Rehoboam, Solomon's son, the cause for the split started as a result of Solomon's sin. It started when Solomon disobeyed God. 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 4 tells us the reason. Here we read 1 Kings chapter 11, 1 through 4. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. We see here Solomon's fame and fortune turn into failure. We see his success turn into sensuality. We see Solomon, the temple builder, become an idol worshiper. We see Solomon, the wisest man, become a fool. It's interesting that Solomon's trouble started just like his father David's did, with lust. Another sinful similarity to Solomon uh, is that his trouble started at the height of his career, at a time of peace and rest, just like his father David. Prosperity and blessing can be dangerous at times. Sometimes we can use God's gifts to do things to dishonor him. Sometimes too much money and too much time can be a bad thing. And fathers, fathers, take heed. Be careful of the life you lead before your kids because more is taught. I'm sorry, more is caught than is taught. The sin you plant today, the seed you sow today, might not bloom until years later. But make no mistake, mistake. God is not mocked. What you sow, you reap. Sin has consequences, and sometimes those consequences affect more than just you, as Solomon found out. Take a look at verse 11. Matter of fact, let's go back to verse 9 here. Here we read, The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Solomon's reign of peace and security starts to shake as enemies start to rise and the roots of rebellion start to grow. Years later, when Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam becomes king. The young, inexperienced king unwittingly splits the kingdom when he refuses to listen to the advice of the elders that served his father. He instead listens to the advice of the young men he grew up with. He increases tax burdens, causing ten of the twelve tribes to revolt against him. The seeds of sin that were planted by Solomon's disobedience years earlier are now full-grown, and the reaping begins. The kingdom rips in two. 
two tribes remained loyal to Rehoboam and formed Judah, the southern kingdom. The other ten tribes follow a man named Jeroboam and form the northern kingdom called Israel. Just a side note here, especially for our young people here, our teenagers, our college students, be very careful of who you go to for advice. Proverbs 16.31 says, Gray hair is a crown of splendor. It is attained by the way of righteousness. If I can explain that in my own words, your parents aren't as stupid as you think we are. <laughs> That's a Dave Moore translation. That doesn't it? Stick with the NIV. Don't do the DMT. But anyway. <laughs> now, I've covered a lot of ground here, and it may be a little confusing, so I've put a little chart here on your paper, as you can see. When you read through the book of Kings, the, the author switches back a lot and forth between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. We'll talk about one king and switch to another king. So it could be a little difficult to follow at times. But what I've done is I just made a simple out, outline here. And if you look at it, you'll see that at the top of the chart, we see King David. That's the giant slayer, the, the shepherd king, the man after God's own heart. Next, we see his son, Solomon. And under Solomon, then we see Rehoboam. Now, that's a family line, obviously. A grandfather, father, son, depending on which way you look at it. Uh, David reigned for about 40 years, Solomon reigned for about 40 years, and Rehoboam reigned for about 17 years. Under Solomon there, you'll see the 12 tribes are united and strong. That's that period of blessing and bliss that I was talking about. When Rehoboam takes over, that's when the split happens. That's when the fracture happens. Two tribes, you can see on the left-hand side of the paper there, two tribes stay loyal to King Rehoboam, and it's a little difficult to pronounce these names too. It can throw you back and forth. But two tribes stay loyal to King Rehoboam and form the southern kingdom known as Judah. The other ten tribes follow a man named Jeroboam and make up the northern kingdom called Israel. It seems like this, this split, this civil war, is a catalyst for sin. As soon as this split happens, both kingdoms take this tremendous plunge, this spiral, if you will, a downward spiral, into sin. Jeroboam, the king of the northern kingdom, is seduced by his power, and he doesn't want to give it up. He sets up golden calves for the people to worship. I don't know what it is with golden calves, but we just can't seem to get away from them in the Scripture. He also appoints his own priests. He basically makes his own religion. He doesn't want the people to return to the southern kingdom where the temple that Solomon built is located because he's afraid the people will become united again and he'll lose his power. Unfortunately, King Rehoboam in the southern kingdom, they don't do much better. The people in the southern kingdom, as well as Rehoboam and the leaders and the priests, they sacrifice on the high places, they build idols, and they engage in temple prostitution. One thing that is repeated over and over in the book is that the people and the leaders did evil in the sight of the Lord. Of the approximately 40 kings, only eight of them were godly. How many godly kings do you think the northern kingdom had? None. It seemed that each successive king did more evil than the previous one in both kingdoms. And this evil, these evil lines, these evil kings reigned for about 350 years. Basically, both kingdoms, God's people, are a mess. Into this sinful sewer of idolatry, immorality, child sacrifice, false religion, probably whatever else you could think of, God sends his prophets. He sends men that he speaks through to warn his people and to warn their leaders to repent and return to him. Can't you see God's grace as he continually reaches out to a people that won't listen? Can't you see his grace in the warnings that he issues over and over through the prophets for approximately 350 years. God is calling his people back and sending his prophets over and over and over. God's warnings are always an act of love and grace. 
just like our warnings to our children are an act of love and grace. What father, what parent wouldn't warn their children not to run across the street? Remember the parable of the tenants that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 21? He says a landowner plants a vineyard, he puts a wall around it, he digs a wine press, he builds a watchtower, then he rents it out to some tenants and he goes away on a journey. When harvest comes, he sends his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seize his servants, they beat some, they treat some shamefully, they stone some, and they even kill some. So what does the landowner do? He sends more servants. And the tenants do the same thing to them. Last, he says, I'll send his son. Did you ever realize that the servants in this parable, those who were beaten, stoned, and killed, those are the prophets in the Old Testament. Men like Elijah, Elisha, Jeremiah, Jonah, John the Baptist. I remember when we discussed this parable in our growth group, someone said, what's wrong with that landowner? Doesn't he get it? Why does he keep sending his servants over and over when all they're doing is, is stoning them and killing them? Well, obviously the landowner represents God the Father. This parable is a picture of God's grace, his loving warnings that he extends over and over up to the point where he sends his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who voluntarily comes, knowing full well what's going to happen to him. Trust me, God gets it. We don't get it. Or maybe I should say it this way. Jesus got it, so we don't have to get it. Let me read to you from Daniel chapter 9. As Daniel sums up in prayer the sinfulness of the people at this time. You don't have to turn there, I'll turn there, because Daniel's even harder to find than First Kings. But remember, Daniel is speaking here from firsthand experience. He was one of the exiles. He was one of those forcefully taken into captivity. There's never mention of what happened to Daniel's parents. It's pure uh, summation, if that's such a word. When I use big words, I make them up. But who knows what, who knows, <laughs> who knows what happened to, to Daniel's parents? Maybe they were murdered. But anyway, from Daniel chapter 9 here, this is Daniel praying about 70 years after the exile. Daniel says this, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenants of love with all who obey him and obey his commands, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. I don't know if you ever finished reading Daniel's prayer, but it's really amazing what happens. You should read that another time. But what I want to do is I just want to call your attention to verse 6 where Daniel says, We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. So why this little history lesson? What does this ancient Old Testament book of 1 Kings have to do with us today? What's its relevance? What can we learn from it more importantly? What can we put in our lunchbox and use at work on Monday morning? Turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Here we read the Apostle Paul as he writes, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Peter says it this way in Acts chapter 10. All the prophets testify about Jesus that everyone who believes in his name receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. Here's my point. As God sent his prophets in the time of the kings and throughout the Old Testament to preach the gospel, he is sending us now. We are the prophets of today. 
Remember earlier when I spoke about the fact that we have one God, the same God in the Old Testament that is in the New Testament? Well, that same one God has one message of salvation, and he has one messenger service, me and you. 1 Peter 2.9 says that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that we may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So now I have a question for you, a question for me. When was the last time you declared the praises of God who brought you out of darkness? When was the last time you shared the gospel with someone? When was the last time you were a modern-day prophet? Maybe it's been a long time. Maybe, maybe it's never. Do you have a desire to share the gospel with someone? Have you ever experienced the, uh, the spiritual, the emotional high that comes when you actually sit down and share the gospel face-to-face with someone and you see them getting it? I don't know if you haven't experienced that. I really hope you do. I can't explain it, but it's one of the greatest joys in my life, to be honest with you. There may be many reasons why we don't share the gospel. Honestly, sometimes I think those reasons are really excuses. Maybe we don't share because we're scared, we're intimidated, maybe we're ashamed. I've been there. There's been times when I've chickened out. There's been times when I should have opened my mouth and I didn't. Times like when Elijah just kind of ran away. But you know what? The more you do something the easier it becomes. And the more confident, hopefully, the better you become at it. Most of you know that my trade is I'm a detective. And as a detective, I'm required to testify, to be a witness in court. Even after 20 years of policing, I still get a little nervous when I get called to court to testify, but not as nervous as the first time. Because the more I did it, the easier it became, the more confident, hopefully, the better I got at it. And it's a part of my job. It's mandatory. It's my duty. Imagine if, imagine if I arrested a criminal, criminal did a heinous crime against you or one of your family members, and it comes time to go to court and they call me to testify, and I don't testify because I'm ashamed or I'm scared, I'm intimidated. That's not acceptable. That can't happen. John the Baptist came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all men may believe. In Acts, 6, in Acts before Jesus ascends to heaven, he says to his disciples, you will be my witnesses. Jesus says that we are the salt of the earth, not can you be the salt of the earth. Don't be ashamed of the gospel or of Jesus Christ, or Jesus will be ashamed of you when he returns with his holy angels. Mark chapter 8. Another thing that happens when I go to court is that I wear my my Sunday best. I wear my suit, my tie, uh, I shave, I get a haircut of Danielle's not too busy. But when I walk... (laughs) That's a hard one. (laughs) But when I walk into the courtroom... All eyes are upon me. The jury is looking at me. They're summing me up. They're making a judgment about me already. They're evaluating me. I walk in. I say, good morning. I try to look and to act professional. The prosecutor, as we call them, the ADA, which stands for Assistant District Attorney, the ADA will start by asking me a few basic questions, like my rank, my name, my command, where I work. But before the ADA starts to ask me questions about the arrest, about the case, about what specifically happened, the real interesting and the real convicting details, she will attempt to lay a foundation. She'll attempt to uh, do some uh, groundwork, if you will. She will ask questions that will build me up as a qualified, believable, even an expert witness. I've always been into cars. I've always been a little bit of a motorhead. So when I became a detective, I worked in a unit called the Auto Crime Division. I did cases involving stolen cars. Talk about God's sovereignty. But the ADA will ask, will ask my qualifications as a detective, like, 
How many arrests have I made? How many search warrants have I executed? Did I receive any specialized training from the police department? Then she will go back to before I was a cop, when I was an auto mechanic, and she will ask about that. You know why she does that? Because she's paving the way. She's priming the jury. She's preparing the jury for the moment when I start to talk about the real important facts of the case. If it all goes as planned, the jury's already thinking that, wow, this detective really knows this stuff. They're ready to accept, to listen to what I have to say. But what do you think would happen if I showed up late, if I didn't have my suit on, if I had on a dirty shirt, dirty jeans, I didn't shave, I didn't get a haircut, and I just walked into the courtroom and I, and I had an attitude? What do you think that jury would do? They wouldn't even listen to me. Even if I was telling the truth, even if that criminal was guilty, they wouldn't listen to me. So what's my point with this little story here? Before you share the gospel, make sure you're living it. Your appearance, your actions, your lifestyle, your words will either open people's ears to what you have to say or it'll close them, just like that jury. Sometimes people reject the message because of the messenger. Would someone listen to you because of how you live or would they say, just another religious hypocrite? Proverbs 20.11 says, even a child is known by his actions. If you live a holy life, people will find you. You won't have to find them. And when they come to you and they ask you, what makes you tick? Why didn't you yell at that guy? Why didn't you punch that guy in the nose? Why didn't you react the way the world reacts? That's your opportunity to point to Christ. And if you don't point to Christ at that moment in time, you know what you did? You just stole a little bit of God's glory. Make sure that's your opportunity to point to Christ and give him the glory. Maybe some of us don't share the gospel because we think, I don't have a dramatic testimony. I don't have a radical conversion. I'm not really a big sinner. Maybe if I was a big sinner or someone rich or someone powerful, then people would listen to me. Sometimes we hear these amazing testimonies of how God radically changes a wicked person. But you know what? It's just as big a miracle when God saves a moral person, a good person, a self-righteous person, as when he saves a wicked person. As a matter of fact, I would say the bigger miracle is when God saves the morally good, self-righteous person. Here's a question for you guys. In my 20 years of policing, who do you think I witnessed to more, cops or criminals? I should make you raise your hands. Criminals. You know why? Because they're in a jail cell handcuffed, and I've got to listen to them. No, no. <laughs> they're a captive audience. No. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I never forced a conversation on someone that didn't want to listen or talk. But I had more of an opportunity to witness the criminals. You know why? Because they know what they are. They know that they're lawbreakers. They know that they need a Savior. The moral, self-righteous person doesn't know they need a Savior. That's why Jesus kept bumping heads with the Pharisees so much. We see a perfect example of that in Luke 18, where the Pharisee and the tax collector go into the temple to pray. Which one of those two goes home forgiven? The broken, sinful tax collector who knows he's a sinner. Never underestimate the power of your own personal testimony, your conversion. When God takes a heart of stone and turns it into a heart of flesh, it's always a tremendous miracle. Remember the simple testimony of the man born blind in John chapter 9? Once I was blind, now I see. Maybe some of us think that if I had the ability to perform miracles, if I could call down fire like Elijah, if I could heal the sick, if I could make food like Jesus did, or if I could raise the dead, if I had that kind of power, people would definitely listen to me then. But do you know what the purpose of miracles in Scripture were? 
They were to confirm the message of the messenger. Let me say that again. The purpose of miracles in Scripture were to confirm, to validate the message of the messenger because they didn't have a completed copy of the Scriptures as we do. Moses was given three signs, three miracles to prove that God sent him. The prophets were given signs and miracles to validate that their gospel message was the truth. In 1 Kings, after Elijah raised the dead widow's son, she said, now I know that you are a man of God and that your words are true. Nicodemus said to Jesus, we know you are from God because no one could do the miracles you do unless God was with him. Again, miracles proved that the message was the truth. We don't have miracles today because we have the completed scriptures. Miracles ceased when the Bible was completed. Today we compare what is taught against the word. Because John 17, 17 says, the word is truth. It's never been about the miracles. It's always been about the word, about the message. What does Paul say in Romans 10, 17? Faith comes by seeing a bunch of miracles? No. Paul says faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. In our growth group, another question that we were struggling with or throwing around a lot, and we couldn't quite figure out, was why, after Jesus healed someone, that he would say, don't tell anyone. Could you imagine if Jesus came to your house and healed your dead child and then said, shh, don't tell anyone? I I couldn't keep that secret. (laughs) But do you know why he did that? He did that because it's never been about the miracles. It was about his message, the gospel. And after Jesus rose from the dead, that's when he said, now tell everyone. Remember when Jesus told the story of the rich man and Lazarus in in Luke 16? Lazarus dies and is carried to heaven. The rich man dies and he's in hell. The rich man asks Abraham if someone can go back from the dead to warn his family so they won't wind up in hell where he is. Abraham says they have Moses and the prophets. They have the scriptures. Let them listen to them. The rich man says, no, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes back from the dead, they will surely repent. Abraham says, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, if they don't believe the word of God, then even if someone raises from the dead, they won't believe it. The power is in the word. It's in the scriptures. That's why when Jesus faced the devil, he quoted scripture. He could have made any weapon. He could have called down legions of angels, but he quoted the word of God. Well, maybe some of us are being faithful witnesses. Maybe we're living a holy life. We're praying faithfully. We've shared the gospel with almost everyone we know. People have these little nicknames for you like Deacon Dave, Joe Holy, Reverend Goody Two Shoes. I hope you've heard some of those things. Maybe we've, maybe we've even brought people to church, only to have them turn away and return to their sinful lifestyle. That can be very discouraging, especially if it's one of our loved ones. But don't give up. Never tire of doing good. Don't think you failed. Don't sell out to some seeker-friendly, watered-down version of the gospel. Just preach the word the way it's recorded for us in scriptures. And remember that your assignment, your task, is to tell people, just to spread the word. God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is the only one that can give that seed growth. Turn to Mark chapter 4, verse 26, real fast. Mark chapter 4, verse 26. Here we have the parable of the growing seed. Follow along as I read verses 26 through 28. Jesus was saying the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil and he goes to bed at night and he gets up by day 
and the seed sprouts up and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. What does the farmer do after he plants the seed, after he sows the seed? According to this parable, he goes to sleep. Who causes that seed to grow? Not the farmer. According to verse 27, it says the farmer doesn't know how it grows. It grows all by itself. You know who causes that seed to grow? God causes that seed to grow. It's a sovereign act of God, just like salvation. You can't cause the word to grow in someone's heart. Only God can through the power of the Holy Spirit. Even Paul realized this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. He says this. This is the Apostle Paul speaking, the great missionary. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave it growth. Just plant the seed, water it with prayer, obviously, and let God be responsible for the growth. And remember, just like a farmer, if he wants a lot of crops, he doesn't just put one seed in the ground. He scatters seed as much as possible. The Bible says if you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you reap bountifully. Preach the gospel as much as you can. But remember, you can't save anyone. But Jesus Christ said, I will build my church. Well, those are some reasons why we might not share the gospel. But let me ask you a question. What if God opened up a tremendous door for you to share the gospel? What if someone said to you, hey, what is this Jesus thing all about? Tell me about that. Can you effectively share the gospel? Can you explain that to someone? There was a time in my life when I couldn't. So I practiced it. What I did, I'm a little cookie. I wrote it out. I have these little index cards here. And every once in a while, I kind of study them. I study the scriptures so I can get it in here. So that I can tell someone that the Bible says that heaven, eternal life, is a gift from God. In the book of Romans, chapter 6, verse 23, it says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus the Lord. Eternal life or heaven is not something that you can earn or something that you deserve. It's a gift. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it says this. It says that God saved you through faith as an act of his kindness. You had nothing to do with it. Being saved is a gift from God. It's not as a result of anything good that you've done to deserve it. Gifts are always free. The Bible is very clear. Eternal life, heaven, is a free gift from God. You can't buy it, and you can't earn it. The Bible also says that every human being is a sinner, that we're all sinners. Every person that has ever lived is a sinner. Again, in the book of Romans, we read, For all have sinned and fallen short of God's standards, that there is no one righteous, no, not even one. God defines sin as missing his mark, not living up to his standards. Do you know what God's standard is, what his mark is? Jesus tells us when he says to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Peter explains it this way. Peter says to be holy as God is holy. God's standard is absolute perfection, never sinning, not even once. I'm not perfect. I can't meet God's standards. I miss his mark over and over. I can't even keep man's laws perfectly. How many of us broke the speed limit driving here this morning? Or how many of us rolled through that stop sign right out there? You know? But you know what? I don't need the Bible to tell me that I'm a sinner. My heart of heart tells me that. And if you're honest with yourself, your heart will tell you that also. And remember, the standard, absolute perfection, is set by God, not us. Funny thing about human nature, we can always look to someone who's a little bit more evil than ourselves to make us feel a little better. Don't do that. Look to God's perfect standard. Compare yourself to that, nothing else. 
The Bible also says that God is merciful and He doesn't want to punish us. He doesn't want any to perish. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 simply says God is love. It also says that God is holy and just and that He must punish sin. In the book of Exodus, it says God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Ezekiel says the soul that sins shall die. And the death that God has in store for sinners, for those who are not absolutely perfect, is eternal punishment in a place called hell. Hell is described as a place of everlasting suffering, of torment, weeping, gnashing of teeth, of outer darkness. Imagine your worst nightmare, your worst horror, continuing forever and ever and ever. So now we have a tremendous problem here. The only way to get to heaven, the only way to have eternal life, is to be perfect, not one sin. I'm in trouble. You're in trouble. We're all in trouble because we're all sinners. And human beings cannot save themselves from hell because we cannot be absolutely perfect. But remember I told you that God is love. He loved us so much that he didn't leave us in this hopeless, helpless state. The Bible says this is how much God loved us. He gave his son, Jesus Christ, his one and only son. And this is why. So that no one need go to hell. By believing in him, anyone can have eternal life in heaven. You see, Jesus Christ is both God and man. The Bible says that in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Jesus then took on flesh and lived among us. Jesus came to earth and lived a perfect life. He kept God's laws and man's laws perfectly. He didn't miss the mark. He never sinned, not even once. And then, then he voluntarily died on the cross, rose from the grave to pay the penalty for our sins and to purchase a place in heaven for those who will believe in him. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All of us, every one of us, have gone astray. We've all sinned. We all do what we want. Each one of us, we just do what we think is right. But God has laid all our sin, all our punishment, on Jesus Christ, his son. You see, God's holiness demanded payment, but God's grace provided it in Jesus Christ. Jesus died on a wooden cross, something similar to that one back there, for sinners like you and me. He took the punishment we deserve for our sins. We are forgiven at the cross. God now offers the gift of forgiveness for our sins. How do we accept that gift from God? By faith. The Bible says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The faith I'm talking about is not just head knowledge. It's not just intellectually saying, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, and then living like you don't. The devil and the demons, they believe in Jesus, but they're not going to heaven. It's not a temporary faith. It's a true, life-changing faith. You stop trusting in yourself, and you trust in Jesus alone for eternal life. You believe He is who He said He is. You stop trying to work or to earn your way into heaven with your good deeds. You acknowledge that I am a sinner. I need help. It's a faith that causes you to do a 180-degree turn. You stop living for yourself, and you start living for Christ. It's not about religion. It's definitely not about religion. It's about a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Acts 16.31 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. All right, so let's start bringing this down here a little bit. One lesson that we should learn from the book of Kings is that obedience equals blessing and disobedience equals discipline. Sin always leads to problems. 
God meant what he said when he spoke through the prophets in the Old Testament, and he means what he says when he speaks to us today through the Scriptures. And aren't you glad that we have a God that doesn't lie, that he doesn't change his mind, a God that speaks and then acts, a God that promises and then fulfills, a God that what he says he will bring about, what he plans to do he will accomplish. We have such great and precious promises in the Word of God, and don't we cling to those promises when the storms of life arise? I mean, aren't you glad that you have a God that tells you that no matter what happens in your life, that he is working all things together for good? Aren't you glad that you have a God that says, don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge me and I will make your path straight, Proverbs 3. Psalm 34 tells us that in this life we will have many troubles, but God will deliver us from them all. His eyes are upon me. His ears are attentive to my cry. His angels surround me. He's close to the brokenhearted. I know that God has a plan for my life, a plan to prosper me and not harm me. Jeremiah 29. I know that if I confess my sin, he will cleanse me from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. I know with God all things are possible. And I know that I have the Son and I have eternal life. Let me just close with this. Turn to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, verse 12. 1 John chapter 5, verse 12. Here we read the Apostle John writes these words. 1 John chapter 5, verse 12. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. If God means what he says, and he does, the majority of people I know, and I would dare to say the majority of people you know, do not have the Son. They do not have life. But look at verse 14. Let's not leave it there. Look at verse 14 here. John continues to say, This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. What if we approach God and ask, ask, ask this? Lord, cleanse me, educate me, equip me as I study the scriptures. Then give me opportunities and give me courage. And use me as a modern day prophet to preach the gospel to a dying world, to my dying family and friends so that souls may be saved from hell and that you may be glorified. I guarantee God will answer that prayer because that's a prayer that we're asking according to his will, according to his heart. God doesn't want anyone to perish, but to all to come to repentance. Brothers and sisters, we are the prophets of today. So let's proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Amen. I'm just going to ask uh, Tracy to come up and sing a song for us. It's a song by Steve Green. It's entitled, People Need the Lord, and then uh, I'll close with the uh, benediction.
Every day they pass me by I can see it in their eyes Empty people filled with care Headed who knows where On they go through private pain Living fear to fear. Laughter hides this silent cry. Only Jesus hears. People need the Lord. People need Mm-hmm.